What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We'll be world traveling today off to Mauritius, an island off an island, Madagascar, in the Indian Ocean, 1,200 miles east of Mozambique on the East African coast. To this beautiful tropical and mountainous land we go, it's been much fought over and is the scene of the story Silent Winds, Dry Seas by today's guest, Vinod Bushjit. Welcome, Vinod. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Diane, for having me on your show and for giving me the opportunity to talk about Mauritius and about my novel. Well, it's a, fasc- it's a fascinating novel, and it's interesting uh, due to its scale of size, relatively small, 790 square miles, uh, or maybe just the ignorance of the West. Little is known about Mauritius, and I think you did us a great service by introducing us to your country. Um, it was a prize target for European countries looking to establish control and trade routes in the Indian Ocean, first by the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French, and then the British. Um, it has marked several Independence Days, and, and lately, and latest of which was when it became a republic unto itself in 1992. And so, Vinod, you, you grew up there. You, for you, Mauritius is personal. How would you describe the period prior to independence, or just how would you describe Mauritius to an outsider? What comes to mind first for you? Well, of course, the first thing that comes to mind uh, about Mauritius is its multiracial and multilingual character. Uh, Its population is made up of people of Indian ancestry, African ancestry, French ancestry, Chinese ancestry. And uh, we speak uh, French, Creole, English, Hindi, uh, and uh, other Oriental languages. Uh, uh, So in addition to that, well, of course, it's a multicultural country. So that's kind of the first thing I would say. It's multicultural, multiracial, multilingual. And it's fascinating. yeah, it's kind of a crucible of the whole of the whole you know world practically in that little in that in that tiny island. And exactly, is, it's like where east meets west. Right, and yet you encountered a lot of ignorance about Mauritius. Um, in the book, you describe how Vishnu, the protagonist, is met with stares about how it must be, you know, an African tribal nation, when in fact it had all of the, you know, top four countries in Europe at the time as as influences. And I wondered, you know, you, you experienced this very high level of culture, high level of actually of affluence. Um, how was it to be confronted with some of this ignorance and some of the um, stereotypes from others in the West? Yeah, I was actually taken aback by how little people knew about Mauritius, but I attribute that actually to the fact that uh, first, very little is taught about other countries in the United States. Uh, In Europe, generally, Mauritius is well known. Uh, in the United States, it's not. And uh, I recall uh, going to high school in uh, the United States when I first arrived here. And uh, I was struck by how great the physical facilities were. But then I was dumbfounded by the questions the students asked me, not only about Mauritius, but about Africa, about India. Uh, so one student asked me whether Africa was in India. So I would say I was surprised. However, my reaction to that is I use it as an opportunity to talk about Mauritius. I don't don't look at it 
sort of negatively. I mean, it's 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 a pity that uh, people don't know about Mauritius. And when people say that to me, I engage in a conversation. Mm-hmm. Says being from Mauritius helped me socially, helped me treat to uh, you know get to know people and get people to know me and know my country. Right, and there are approximately 1.2 million people living on Mauritius now. It it was comprised of several islands, right? And now, um, you know, there's been a lot. There's been an evolution, but one of the continual threads seems to me to be Hinduism, and the and that's also governed by the concepts of um, Dharma, uh, for one thing, of you know, there's a karmic existence, there's a karmic repercussion. It's the practice of yoga. Um, what, what, how would you describe the influence of Hinduism in both the story that you told in, dry sea, in uh, Silent Winds, Dry Seas, and in your life as well? I would say, well, uh, Mauritius is a majority Hindu country. However, uh, what has happened to Hinduism in Mauritius is it has also, you know, it, we exist side by side with Christians, with Buddhists, uh, Muslims. So uh, Hinduism in Mauritius has not been like what we see today in the Modi's India. Uh, Hindus in Mauritius have uh, got along with the rest of the community, with other communities on the island. And uh, I would say that uh, it, uh, uh, Mauritians, be, Mauritians are religious, I would say, by and large. Almost everybody I know in Mauritius is religious, be it Hindu, Muslim, uh, Catholic, uh, Protestant, Buddhist. So I would, uh, the way, I mean, I would put it is, uh, though I am myself not a believer, I'm an atheist, I uh, have been influenced by uh, Hindu concepts, Hindu ideals, in uh, Hindu values. At the same time, I was exposed to Christianity. I was exposed to uh, Islam, and so I have also absorbed uh, influences from these religions. Uh, again, as I said, I am not a believer, but I have been influenced by all these religions. May I relate an anecdote just to tell you? Of, of uh, course. You know, uh, since we are talk, going to talk about identity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, when my daughter was around 10 years old, you know, we were living in Vienna, Virginia. On Christmas Day, there was a knock on the door. And I look to the keyhole, and I see two ladies, two you know, American ladies, holding a book, which I kind of you know, figured out, that's the Bible. I opened the door, and I said, hello, and this went, you know, they said, hello. And uh, the la- one of the ladies said to me, uh, you know, today is the day of our Lord. Uh, would you have time to talk about him? And, you know, she looked at the Christmas tree, though... Uh, You know, I was brought up as a Hindu. Uh, We had a Christmas tree at home. So I said, yeah, fine. So uh, I said, fine, I'd like to talk to you about it, but I have to tell you the following. I said, I was brought up as a Hindu. I'm an atheist. My wife is a Muslim. Mm -hmm. My daughter is a Catholic. (laughs) My stepdaughter is a Catholic who is going out with a Palestinian uh, with an American whose father is a Palestinian Muslim and whose mother is an American Jew. Mm-hmm. So they looked at me, dumped, they couldn't, you know, they looked at me like, boy, what's, where are we now? And, and then said, well, that's very interesting. Well, have you read this? Have you read that? And I, I said, yeah, I've read all that stuff. So just to give an idea of, you know, who, who, who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I really think this idea of living comfortably with one another in mixed ethnicities and religions, it's hopefully a microcosm of the world, of the way we can be at peace with one another. 
And I love that story, uh, Vinod. Um, I want to I want to give but, listeners yeah. a little a little uh, formal background. You were born in Mauritius, a multicultural island off the coast of Madagascar. You were educated at the Royal College Secondary School and then studied at Madagascar at the French University, Charles de Gaulle, and in the U.S. at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, New York University, and at Harvard. You've worked as a secondary school teacher in Mauritius, as an international banker at the World Bank, and the International Finance Corporation in Washington, D.C., and as a diplomat. So after 29 years in economic development, finance, and diplomacy that took you to over 50 countries, you've known turned to writing. And I, I wondered how you felt that um, in silent winds, dry seas, your dual citizenship with U.S. and Mauritius, your ideal world where there would be no national passports and your consideration of yourself as a world citizen, how did that inform you and your protagonist when you were writing Silent Winds, Dry Seas? Yeah, it it did uh, actually. Yeah, I, I I consider myself a cosmopolitan, you know, and uh, I am you know, I proud to say that. I'm proud to be a Mauritian. I'm proud to be an American. But most importantly, I'm proud that I'm a human being with a global cosmopolitan outlook. And the novel, uh, you know, is written from the point of view of the narrator, looking back. Uh, at his life. So he's, he's writing it in middle age, though it's about the chi- our childhood and adolescence and up to the you know, time uh, the narrator goes to college. So obviously, uh, it ha- you know, it's, uh, I look uh, at uh, the, the way the story unfolds. I look at the character development from that perspective. So in that sense, uh, I have a, a, a sort of a viewpoint which is, uh, uh, let's say, I wouldn't say multicultural. I would say it's a kind of uh, cosmopolitan. So I do have, uh, you know, maybe uh, I could uh, read just uh, uh, a, a few lines from uh, from the novel which would uh, help answer the question, right? Please do. Uh, uh, that's about, uh, you know, it's, there's an episode in the novel where the protagonist wonders whether he should, uh, uh, you know, pretend to be a, a sort of swami uh, <laughs> in the United States, right? Right. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, the yogi guru fantasy ended when I realized that I wouldn't be able to sustain the untruth for long. Papa and Mama were hovering over my shoulders, unseen but watchful, and their soundless voices would prick my conscience. Sooner or later, I was afraid the truth would spill out of my guts. Now comes the important part. I also had to face the fact that I didn't sound like an Indian. I looked like one, but I did not have an Indian accent, not even a British one. In the four weeks I had been in the United States, not a single person had recognized it. In Mauritius, I spoke to my classmates in Creole, read the daily newspapers and counted in French, studied chemistry and history in English, and greeted grandfathers and grandmothers in the countryside in faltering Bhojpuri. So... Uh, so this is, uh, you know, where I come from. Similarly, my attitude to religion. Uh, there is, uh, there is uh, uh, an episode uh, where the pro- protagonist suffers a mental breakdown, a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of it, you know, he, he writes a kind of... Uh, he writes something which could be called part part sacrilege, but part ecumenism. So I have a, even though I'm not religious, you could say I have a, a, a ecumenical approach. Yes, an ecumenical approach for sure. And you've also, yeah. you've created, I would say, your own 
your own kind of um, worldview, your own kind of outlook, which is not unlike the humanitarianism found in many of the religions, but just without the icons, maybe. And, and yeah. maybe, yeah, but I do, um, you know, I noticed in the book, there are several things that we're going to take apart here um, after we take a commercial break, but uh, we, we do want to talk on just one uh, concept that I noticed, the concept of forgiveness. So in Judeo-Christian you know, tradition, we can forgive all the sins of ourselves and of others. But in Hinduism, for example, there is the lingering, I think, kind of causal and maybe factual uh, realization that actions have consequences and that karma and karmic causation might actually be a reality. Could you possibly embrace the idea of total forgiveness, given these Hindu sensibilities that, yes, actions do have consequences? Yeah, well, on the one hand, you know, you have this concept of karma. karma. Actions do have consequences. On the matter of forgiveness, I make a reference in the novel to uh, an interview that uh, Eli Whistle, you know, gave, in which he said, uh, it's not for me to forgive, but it's for God to forgive, in reference to, uh, you know, forgiving uh, the Nazis, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I have a friend who says that there are schools of, is a religion that is sort of, say, uh, it it, uh, it, uh, different systems of philosophy and uh, so it is you could say it can accommodate very of thought so there is a school of thought which I I don't I can't uh, look it up but there, there are there are Hindus who believe Vinod we're going to cut to a break and when we come back we'll be back with Vinod Bhushji don't go away we'll be right back on Dropping In Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Vinod Pujit, author of Silent Winds, Dry Seas. It's a story of Vishnu, who is striving for the ascendancy and ultimately realizes that perhaps American values were not his own. He was born in Mauritius, as was our author and guest. And I wondered, Vinod, if you have had significant education uh, outside of Mauritius, and as did Vishnu, and then confronted, for, for example, um, a potential job at uh, you know a well-known banking um, institution, uh, Wall Street banking firm. And Vishnu, during his interview, is, is kind of asked, well, what are you looking for in life? And, and he kind of wants an interesting, um, you know, 
an interesting career, uh, a very, um, you know, exploratory career. He wants to employ his knowledge of finances, but ultimately he fails the test of the killer instinct. I'll call it the killer instinct that American banks are looking for. And that is to gain profits over everything else. I wondered if Vishnu's trajectory and his career mirrored your own in some ways and that you turned to the World Bank and to diplomacy over perhaps opportunities that you may have had to go into finance in the world of, you know, trades and, and um, you know, investment banking and all the other glam, the glam positions, and instead went for a more worldly cosmopolitan uh, take on things. Do you think that this was, you know, do you think that this was partly the influence of your upbringing as well? Uh, yeah. A great question, Diane. Uh, however, may I uh, give you, can you let me uh, complete my answer on the issue of forgiveness? I wasn't, uh, I oh, sure. to check something and I, uh, found, I found it. Basically, uh, let me, uh, there was a, uh, a study on, uh, in, entitled Forgiveness, Hindu and Western Perspectives, yeah, uh-huh. done uh, by a scholar at Coventry University in the United Kingdom, and he wrote this paper where he compares Hindu and Chinese beliefs on forgiveness, right? So uh, he argues that forgiveness is an important element within the Hindu religious worldview, even if less explicitly so than within the Christian tradition. See, of course, it's a long article, but uh, uh, the point is that though in the novel I raise the issue of forgiveness in the context of uh, karma, uh, uh, the Hindu religion uh, has schools of thought which were compatible with forgiveness. Okay. Uh, so now I can answer the other, the, ne- the last question, right? Regarding yeah. uh, uh, my my career and how it relates to the profit motive. Indeed, you hit the nail on the head. The reason I uh, worked for the World Bank and for the International Finance Corporation was because the objective of these institutions. Uh, is to promote economic development for the World Bank is through the you know uh, public policy and uh, as far as the International Finance Corporation is concerned development uh, through the private sector so uh, at the end of the day the choice I made was uh, sort of uh, aligned with my value system uh, it kind of I was real. I, I spent you know four years at the Harvard Business School, and I saw you know many many of the problems that Wall Street had. You know the the, the financial crisis and all that. I mean, you could see that in the way in the sort of attitude of uh, many of the MBA students of those days. Uh, I would say now the situation is different in uh, many business schools. Now, you know, there is more exposure to ethics, uh, sustainability issues, environmental issues, and so forth. So I can't speak about uh, the situation now, but when I, uh, when I had to make the decision, you know, where where to go, where to work. I, I made the decision to sort of uh, have a career in the economic development sector, and I'm glad I did. Uh, I am uh, very proud of what I did uh, at mm-hmm. the International Finance Corporation and the World Bank. Mm-hmm. And I also have to explain why, after retirement from those two institutions, I, I joined the Embassy of Mauritius in Washington, D.C. I did it because, uh, you know, all these years I had spent uh, helping uh, uh, individuals and countries in, uh, you know, outside of Mauritius. So I thought, you know, I also have to give back something to Mauritius. So I spent three years 
working as a minister counselor in charge of economic issues at the embassy. Right. A remarkable opportunity, and I follow your line of thought completely. Uh, if you're developing in other countries and the emphasis is on growing communities, this is ironically uh, the conclusion that a number of top bankers, Jamie Dimon, and you know, have come out and said, look, even our own elbows out policies of making money are really not sustainable unless we start to give back and grow the communities that are our customers we are going to not have ultimately a customer base much less a middle class and the idea even with you know Janet Yellen um, commenting that the division of wealth in America in particular you know the one percenters is the least healthy scenario for economics to possibly travel. Agree completely, um, yeah, right? I agree and, completely. And so your career then was devoted to, to broadening the opportunities. And do you feel that that was more of a contribution than you ever could have made elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, that's what I, that's what I feel. I mean, I'll give you a concrete example, right? The first project I work on was in Senegal, you know, to help set up a mortgage bank, right, which would uh, uh, give opportunities uh, for people to buy houses. And uh, today, that bank not only provides housing, but helps in the mobilization of savings from Senegalese uh, worldwide, see? Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of uh, opportunities which I'm glad I... uh, I help to promote. Me too. And I also wondered when you were talking about the transition to the embassy, which enabled you to give back to Mauritius, I also wondered about your transition to writing and how you feel communicating Vishnu's story also helps to uh, sort of spread a word of diversity and perhaps cultural awareness. What was the transition like to uh, becoming... Yeah, yeah, to become a writer. Uh, very clear to me when I started the novel that the novel would be uh, a coming of age story, not only of Vishnu, but the coming of age of Mauritius. So uh, the novel does not only talk about you know the beauty of uh, you know multicultural, uh, multilingual countries. It also addresses the problems, like I do. I do address the problem of uh, ethnic riots leading up to independence. You know, suddenly there was flare-up in Mauritius. So I tackle that head-on. So uh, I would say there is potential for, uh, you know, there is potential for progress and there is potential for retrogression when it comes to living in a multicultural society. And I, you know, tackle both sides of uh, the issue. Well, let me give you some of the things that stood out for me as issues. And certainly you're talking about the uprisings, the riots just before independence with the Creoles. And um, the Hindus, Hindus were not even given the right to vote for a very long time. Um, There was vast discrimination. Not only the Hindus, but the Creoles as well. Essentially, Uh the right to vote was restricted to... Uh, people uh, above a certain income level is your ability to pay tax was one of the criteria used, uh, you know, for voting. Okay, well, this is a perfect segue into my question of then, was there a kind of caste system, a kind of socioeconomic system that transcended even these ethnicities? Um, no, I what, said the political, uh, when it comes to the political, uh, sort of the right to vote and so forth, uh, it was not, the caste system was not an issue because the ruling elite at that time was white. You see, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Mauritius was still a British colony, so it was uh, a, a combination of uh, colonialism and uh, the fact that uh, the, the elite, you know, the elite was essentially the sugar state, uh, the sugar barons in Mauritius. Mm-hmm. The caste system comes into play, I would say, uh, socially, it does, uh, it still does, unfortunately. 
Well, I think it's interesting differentiating um, one kind of a class system from another. And colonization, I mean, we um, in America obviously threw off colonization as, as a mantle that we experienced. But, you know, there is this economic class, the ruling class. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about the dominance of sugar plantations, it, re- it required a division of labor, and it also required, I would say, you know, and coming from, coming from Florida and the U.S., sugar plantations um, are still a major industry, and they're one of the largest uh, polluters. And the whole reason that we have red tides and, you know, a lot of um, climate change issues, environmental issues arise out of it. Can you comment on on that experience and for Vishnu yeah. as the well? The sugar as industry in Mauritius now is no longer the major you know part of the economy. Uh, after independence, the Mauritian economy diversified in you know first into textiles, then into electronics, and uh, now financial services. So I would say one cannot really say today that the sugar industry in Mauritius is contributing to uh, this kind of problem. Uh, I think what Mauritius is facing now is more uh, the issue of erosion, the the impact of climate change on sea levels. Uh, It's a different kind of problem today. Well, you've historically had cyclones. Cyclone Carol was the biggest and most dramatic that you describe in your book, which was fascinating, winds of 120 miles per hour. And there were um, 1,700 casualties. Um, It was 42 people were killed, nearly 70,000 of the island's total population were in refuge centers refuge centers. And I, I wonder about, you know, climate change and the vo- feeling of vulnerability of being on a very small island out in the Indian Ocean. You experienced a kind of physical vulnerability that we're only now starting to experience. And what was that like? Yeah. Uh, to the credit of the Mauritian governments after independence and to the credit of the Mauritian people, I would say that the quality of housing in Mauritius has improved tremendously from the time when I was growing up. So uh, Mauritius now actually, I think, does a better job at handling cyclones than Florida does. I am amazed at how many uh, houses get destroyed during uh, you know, uh, hurricanes in uh, Florida. Uh, the problem uh, Mauritius faces today is uh, you know, rising sea levels. That is, that is a major issue, and it's something that you know Mauritius can't tackle alone. Right. It is. It is a. It it is a global problem, and the solution will have to be you know global. And are, is, is Mauritius then joining with other countries to form oh, yeah. Mauritius a court? Is, is, uh, quite active actually in. Uh, uh, in the, you know trying to deal with that but is uh, enlisting other countries we are quite active at the united nations on this front and uh, hopefully you know it will be tackled at a you know uh, at the international level yes i, I have I'm to very... also make a point uh, here uh, mauritius uh, at the time of independence you know we thought of ourselves as just the island of mauritius but, you know, Mauritius has a 200-mile uh, economic zone. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, now uh, Mauritius is thinking of itself more like an archipelago. Sort of, it's mm-hmm. not just one island, but there are islands around uh, Mauritius that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, are kind of part of Mauritius. The, there is now, there is a... Uh, uh, there's, uh, the, there's the issue of uh, the, the Diego Garcia, which is, uh, an, uh, you know, it's an, it's an island that used to be part of Mauritius, but then uh, was not, uh, you know, was kind of chopped off from Mauritius by the United Kingdom government at the time of independence. Mm-hmm. And that island is uh, 
now surrendered to the United States, which keeps uh, a, a base there. And uh, so there are issues of sovereignty over Jagugasia, which are, uh, uh, you know, which are an issue. Uh, I'm raising it because, uh, you know, uh, we Mauritians think of Jagugasia as being part of Mauritius. Right. It must be strange to be constantly interfered with by Western countries, including America. We have to pause to take a commercial break very soon. But, you know, it's funny when you started talking about hope. And, of course, we're all very interconnected on climate change. Just as you started talking about that, a hot air balloon rose in front of my window here in Switzerland. So maybe that's well, symbolic. That's <laughs> yeah. And I hope that um, hope it indicates that there's positive, um, positive ways of uh, looking at things in yep. future. The book, um, the book, Silent Winds, and Dry Seas by Vinod Bujit has just come out August 17th. It's, uh, it's a great novel. It's a great first novel. And we'll inform you of all the inner workings of being an islander, being part of a world that um, might feel different, but more increasingly identifiable and relatable to those of us in the West. I will leave you with the idea that when we come back, speaking with Vinod Bougie, author, that we will tackle the subject of women's rights, which were historically a subject of repression. Vinod, you're going to have to be accountable for this. But um, first, we're going to take a commercial break. So don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have a le- you have a le- you have a le- you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Vinod Bougid. And there has never been a more beautiful cover to a book, I think, than Silent Winds, Dry Seas. Vinod, congratulations on this debut novel. And I, I want to pick up where we left off. Um, you're talking in broad terms about colonization and civilization versus culture. One of the indicators is equality for a country's people, is it not? And women's education in Mauritius was uh, an issue for a long time, as was the division of labor between men and women. Men never got into the kitchen. In the story, I I really was taken aback, um, but that was Vishnu's story many decades ago. Has it changed? Has it come around in your view? Okay. Uh, let me first, uh, for the benefit of your listeners, right, uh, say something about how uh, I raise that issue in the novel. I have a whole chapter, in, which is entitled one cha- a chapter entitled "All the Same Source," which is about you know a woman who commits suicide, uh, being married to a much older man who is uh, brutal, who brutalizes her. And uh, uh, the the Creole character in there uh, says this has this line, you know, a man all the same source. You know, in Mauritian Creole, you would say, 
and zone the two men lassos that is uh, the uh, the way men treated uh, women when I was growing up was dismal. I mean, dismal, abysmal. And mm-hmm. so I devote a whole chapter to it. And indeed, uh, the the way as I, as you know, the men were not uh, did not do kitchen work in those days. It was kind of the province of women. Uh, to answer your question, has it changed? Yes, it has changed in uh, Mauritius. Uh, I can see it actually in my brothers-in-law. My brothers-in-law, uh, they do a lot of the cooking, actually. They enjoy the cooking. Uh, but uh, I cannot say, I mean, I cannot say that that is universal in Mauritius. I am. Uh, I haven't been to Mauritius for the last... Uh, four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to go there regularly like every 18 months or so. And I witnessed a slow but steady progression in the in the role of women in society. That happened actually as a result of, I would say, economic development and industrialization. As women went out to work and earned money that empowered them. Mm-hmm. But there is Still a lot to be done. Uh, there is one uh, sort of uh, Hindu practice in Mauritius, which is uh, I deplore now, which, uh, you know, there are women who, I think it's once a year, there is a ceremony called Karwa uh, Chot, I think, where women fast, you know, they fast and pray for their husband. Uh, there's nothing wrong in that, but I don't think there's something similar expected of the husband. Uh-huh. And uh, my mother, I, my mother never did that. My sisters never did that. Uh, this is a new thing. I mean, in my view, it's a new thing. Uh, that's you know, it's something I deplore. So, I'd say on the whole, there has been progress uh, in uh, the on, in the status of women in Mauritian society, but much remains to be done. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm glad to hear you say that as a rather enlightened man, I would say. And there's also a class consciousness about doing kitchen work, right? Vishnu, when he goes to universities, he's in America, and now he's got to have a kitchen job in a restaurant. Um, there's a, his skin is soft. He's never been toughened up to manual labor. And that's owing to a kind of upbringing that we can only imagine, where others did this this kind of work. No, yeah, no, I have to uh, explain why this is so. You know. Yes, please do. Uh, in uh, many Mauritian families, you know, manual work was sugarcane work, was work in the sugarcane fields. You know, so it was not manual work that you do, you know, for pleasure. You do manual work, it was tough work. The mm-hmm. people who had, uh, you know, who, let's say, the elite in Mauritius, the, they, as I, I, as I mentioned in the novel, uh, Vishnu never saw a white person doing any manual work in Mauritius, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't see uh, a, a white uh, laborer or a white taxi driver or a white uh, you know, any manual work, you don't see them doing that. I mean, at least in my days, you don't see them doing that. Or if they did, they would do it uh, at home, but they would be employing others. So it's, uh, it was a matter of, uh, you know, getting away. The, the ideal at that time was to have an office job right. where you are not exposed to the vagaries of weather, and uh, uh, so manual work was associated. You go back, let's go back to the days of slavery, in fact. So it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a matter of class. It's, uh, it's a matter of, uh, you know, it's a sign that you have made it. That's, that's what it was. But the attitude to manual labor also has changed in, in Mauritius now. There are people who do it. But, you know, it's a matter of being paid. If you're well paid, if, if you are well paid to do manual work, you'll do it. Mm-hmm. It so happens that manual work in Mauritius was very poorly paid. So right. it's an economic issue. 
It is an economic issue. I wonder if there's been an inversion in that people of color now occupy offices and have office jobs. Yeah, there is an inversion, but still there, there are economic disparities in Mauritius. There are, there are economic disparities. Like uh, I would say, if you take the Creole community in Mauritius, it's, it's a community, you know, where a lot, of man, a lot of manual laborers, they are the poorest community in Mauritius. So there is there is a situation which uh, uh, you know needs to be addressed, as it does elsewhere, Vinod. And I think it's it, I think it's important and sensitive of you to raise it in your novel. Um, you know, maybe colonialization had a bit of a regressive influence on that. What do you think there? You know, I am not one of those who views colonialism as being totally negative. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, um, uh, it has been negative in many ways, but it has brought some benefits as well. And, uh, you know, it, one has to have a nuanced view of uh, colonialism. Of course, that is not a popular view these days, but, uh, for instance, uh, uh, if uh, just, just imagine uh, in the, the education system in Mauritius, you know, it was... Uh, uh, it was pretty good. It was a pretty good uh, educational system uh, we had. Uh, in fact, when I came when I came to the United States, I was surprised at uh, you know how narrow the education here was compared to the one I got uh, back home. And that was uh, one of the but, benefits. But, that was one of the benefits of colonialization. I mean, I think it's interesting yeah. and actually great that you upend some of the politically incorrect ideas that maybe there was some benefit to colonialization with complete knowledge that there were others that were perhaps negative to certain groups. Yeah, and there, were nefar- there were nefarious effects as well. But, uh, you know, uh, I... As I said earlier, you know, I have a cosmopolitan worldview, and uh, I do realize that uh, colonialism, you know, uh, led to suppression of people, uh, and especially, you know, especially, uh, you know, when it comes to countries like India, for instance. But uh, overall, uh, in Mauritius, uh, let's take, you know, British colonialism. When the British took over Mauritius, they, uh, you know, agreed to respect the rights and customs of the French. You know, the, the French language persisted. French mm-hmm. culture is very much is still very much uh, there in uh, Mauritius. So, uh, you know, colonialism has uh, uh, it has different, you know, ways of affecting people's lives in different countries. That's what I want to say. I think it's just a really unique viewpoint, and I'm glad that you are here to share it with us. In general, um, when you when you talk about uh, silent winds, dry seas, how autobiographical is your novel? How come it's not a memoir? It kind of reads as one or historical nonfiction. How would you categorize it? I would say it's a mix of fiction. And uh, you know, uh, and uh, autobiography or memoir. There are events that have invented. There are characters that have made up. Uh, you know, as I said, like I've merged uh, many cousins into one. Uh, I have, uh, uh, you know, introduced uh, events that didn't take place. Uh, let, for instance, there's a to give a concrete example. Uh, I have. Uh, the character Madame Joseph in the novel, uh, and uh, the reason I introduced her was because she's kind of the wise Creole woman, and I wanted a wise Creole woman in my novel. Absolutely. Well, I enjoyed her character very much, as I did many of them. And um, we have just a few minutes to the close. I know you're an atheist. I love that you're up front about declaring that. Do you think that, um, as a cosmopolitan, uh, that the Quran, the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, are they each pointing to some kind of similar truth? Is there some sort of similar or universal desire out there for us to to get along in a humanitarian way? Yeah, you know, there is something about the theory and the practice, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, 
the various religions preach uh, peace and so on. Even there, I am not quite so sure. That's my view. Uh, in the Bible, there's quite a lot of violence in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The Bhagavad Gita preaches peace, but it's in the context of a major war. You know, uh, what do you have in the, you know, in the, it's in the context of this big war. It's in the epic called the Mahabharat, where you have two sides, uh, you know, basically cousins killing each other. So, uh, similarly, if you look at the history of Islam, it's full of violence. So, I would say, you know, I, I am, there are universal truths uh, in, uh, in uh, those religious texts, and, uh, you know, I've absorbed them, but uh, I am, as I said, I'm not a believer. And the takeaway from your novel, then, is... What do you My takeaway, take I mean, uh, you know, people will take away depending on their ideology, their point of view, right? right. Me, they, you know, some people will see it as a novel of aspiration. You know, people, that the narrator overcoming odds, mm-hmm. and then at the end being faced with the question, you know, uh, what was it all about? Is it uh, to serve people? Is it to make money? And so on. So that's one way of, uh, you could say that's one uh, one takeaway. It's a novel of aspiration. It's I also a novel it. about freedom. Freedom mm-hmm. of the individual the, you know, uh, versus uh, the society around him. Uh, freedom of uh, Mauritius vis-a-vis the colonizers. Uh, it's a novel about, uh, you know, uh, individual and the community. But it, well, it, thank uh, you. Takes two. I, I definitely found a resonance with, um, with freedom and individualism in this book, and I really do, it does really resonate with me. I think there is such a range of choice, and I thank you for giving us a novel that allows that kind of um, perspective. Thank you, Vinod Bujit. Your your book is out this week in hardcover and audiobook. You can reach Vinod on Facebook, Vinod Bujit, B-U-S-J-E-E-T, on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, we're just happy to have you with us to uh, foster a new kind of understanding and I think a very realistic point of view. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I hope your listeners enjoy the book. And I thank you again for the opportunity you gave me to talk about uh, the book and about Mauritius and also, you know, to get to know you. Thank you, Vinod. Thanks also to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and take time to travel, if only in your mind and through this book. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.